Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Legal Defense. And I am your host, Kirk O'Bear, guiding you through the weird and wonderful terrain that is criminal law in our fine United States. So, big news earlier this week came out, and it has to do with this ongoing saga regarding the trial of Mark Jensen. And this case goes back many, many years, but the essential uh, facts of the case that are widely known and heavily publicized because of the many, many appeals that occurred in the case have to do with um, Mark's wife, Julie, who allegedly wrote a note uh, anticipating the possibility of her own death and saying that if she dies, it would be uh, at the hands of her husband, Mark. And lo and behold, later, she does end up dying. And the controversy about uh, the evidence in this case is that... um, Circumstantially, the evidence that points to Mark being involved with Julie's death is really this note that was written, as well as a um, statement that was made to somebody else verbally. And uh, absent that, there isn't a whole lot of evidence that implicates uh, Mr. Jensen other than just the factual, you know, coincidence, as it were of uh, Julie's death. So it raised this this real fascinating um, analysis that's gone on for many, many years now about what can be used against a person and getting around the basic rule that we have in our country that you have the right to confront anyone who accuses you of something, Right. So how does that work if the person is dead and has said something previously? Now, you're probably catching on here that the issue we're talking about is hearsay and its many exceptions. And if you listen to the show, you probably hear us talk about hearsay all the time. And um, generally speaking, what we're when we're referencing hearsay, we're talking about a statement that was made out of court, in other words, not during the trial at some previous point, that is being offered by the proponent of the evidence to establish the truth of the matter asserted. So, in other words, the content of that um, statement is being offered as something that is, in fact, true. So, in this case, Julie saying, hey, if I die, it's my husband that did it. They're offering that to show that it's true, that that's what happened. All right, so that that would be, in and of itself, obviously a hearsay statement if the person isn't in court to say so. So then we get into um, a very complicated analysis. And if you don't know about how the laws of hearsay, the rules of hearsay, I should say, work, then um, it's a it's like a family tree. You have to say if this, then that, and then you know all exceptions. There are many, 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 many exceptions to the hearsay rule. And um, the basic idea behind prohibiting hearsay is that there's no um, reliability behind those statements. And if it's something that is being made in anticipation of litigation, it's like substituting um, a statement that should be subject to cross-examination but isn't being subject to cross-examination is basically 
the rule behind it. And, and of course, it's one of those uh, principles that we have in the law that's designed to uh, permit the truth to come out in such a way where our good old-fashioned way of asking direct and cross-examination questions should magically uh, reveal who's telling the truth and who isn't. You know, that classic example of somebody breaking under pressure saying, yes, you got me, I lied, that isn't true, oh, I'm so sorry. Um, (laughs) That's supposed to happen when you cross-examine somebody, I guess, who isn't telling the truth. But anyway... Um, in this Jensen matter, repeatedly in different uh, rulings, there had been efforts by the prosecution, of course, to use this evidence to convict Mr. Jensen. And they did at a trial. And there were objections over the use of particularly this note from the grave, they call it, and the fact that it um, you know, isn't reliable, doesn't pass the test for uh, being given under circumstances that would be deemed reliable. Now, you know, that in and of itself is something that can be um, a challenge that's made. And like most hearsay issues and hearsay exceptions that are being applied, it's left up to the discretion of the trial court, meaning that to overturn it on appeal, it would have to be something really, really wrong, you know, really off base as far as what the judge did. So we have to add another layer of complexity to this, which is there's a rule called, um, you know, admissibility by forfeiture, meaning that if the reason that the declarant, the person who made the statement in this case, Julie Jensen, isn't available because of something that the defendant did, namely killing her, um, then that person cannot, you know, quote unquote, enjoy the protections under the hearsay rule. So, you know, forfeiture being meaning that the defendant has forfeited the right to object to hearsay testimony. Now, although that is definitely a principle that gets applied, it has to be um, shown by the prosecution, as a matter of fact, that um, it was, in fact, the defendant that rendered the person unavailable with the intent to get the person, uh, to keep the person from testifying, okay? So, in a classic example of how this would work, let's say somebody's on trial, they know that there is a witness out there that they that they know would bury him, they know there's a trial coming up, they know that this particular witness would be very damaging to the defense, and the defendant, you know, reaches out and says, hey, don't show up to trial. I'll give you $10,000, okay? And then that can be shown that this, there was this manipulation to try and prevent the testimony from coming in. All of a sudden, this witness can't be found, is quote-unquote unavailable, and then the defendant can't, then the defendant can't say, oh, it's not coming in because it's hearsay, because... Uh, then it was the unavailability created by the the defendant. All of that, normally when we're applying that analysis, is when there's already a case that exists um, and the statement that was made in anticipation of the case going to trial was gathered by law enforcement or given in some other context 
where you know they already know what they're investigating the police already know that this is something that will be used in the case and so on we've got this twist here where this note was written before any crime alleged crime was committed and you add another layer of complexity to this that this forfeiture rule is only designed really um to prevent somebody from who knows that they that this other person has damaging information against them from allowing that defendant to take this person out through bribery or murder or whatever in order to not have them testify so here you know it's the timing of things here that makes it different and interesting because how would Mark Jensen know that he's going to get charged with murder and thereby murder his wife so he doesn't get convicted of murder. That's weird. It doesn't really make sense. But there's been a lot of litigation over the years over whether that analysis can apply regardless of confrontation or hearsay objections. But all that does is it puts the relative parties in in a slightly different position. We still have this problem of the confrontation clause under the Sixth Amendment and whether or not this letter can be, quote-unquote, you know, cross-examined. And the answer is obviously no, it can't. So, you know, I already referenced the fact that in order for something to qualify as a potential hearsay exception, we have to look at whether it's testimonial, whether it's something that is given in anticipation of litigation. And normally, classically, we see that where there's a deposition being done or a recorded statement to the police. And again, here we have this this note that was written. Um, and, you know, there's other questions about authenticity and all that other stuff that isn't really part of this recent decision. But, you know, a note that was written where at least Julie, from the looks of it, did anticipate litigation that if she were murdered, it would be a case against her husband. So that's a really bizarre twist that doesn't fit neatly within all of the legal standards that we normally apply. Well, we'll keep talking about this when we come back in just a few minutes. Stay tuned. We're back talking about the recently revitalized case against Mark Jensen for murder. And we left off talking about how this note, the note from the grave, so to speak, uh, it has played a central role in all of the appeals that have gone uh, up through the system. Now, one thing that has been particularly interesting about watching this case is that you'd see a decision come out and then basically uphold the conviction of Mark Jensen based upon the current state of the law at the time. And then, I'll give you an example, one thing that happened in this case is the United States Supreme Court issued the decision in um, Crawford, C-R-A-W-F-O-R-D, which is a case that um, reiterated how important it is to have the person who would be offering evidence against an accused actually take the stand. And that when we're talking about things that are testimonial in nature and whether or not these are things that are being created in anticipation of litigation. In other words, someone who knows what the subject matter will be. Now, frankly, something created in anticipation of litigation, a statement created in anticipation of litigation, is something that puts it 
squarely within the hearsay prohibition, by the way. Okay. So if it's something that's just said randomly, you know, for whatever reason, it could be deemed non-testimonial. In other words, not, not in the subject, not in the category of something where someone knows that this statement is going to matter. Okay. And, and the reason for that is that people sometimes just say things um, that can be taken out of context or they could be joking or they could be whatever. But if you're under oath in a deposition or if a cop is taking your statement, there's a presumption that you are aware of the fact that this is a serious matter and that what you say will count. It's supposed to add a um, level of, um, I guess, uh, authenticity to it. But at the same time, it's something that when the speaker or author of the hearsay statement would be aware that this is something of significance in a pending matter, well, you know, that's why it can't be done ahead of time and then simply offered at the trial, because that's hearsay, right? Okay. Am I confusing you yet? Because this has confused lawyers all over the country for years, like how this is all supposed to work. But um, getting back to this Crawford analysis, Crawford held, and this had to do with a case where a chemist um, was testing a controlled substance, and it was cocaine, I believe. And in that particular um, way of doing things in that jurisdiction, there had been a long-standing practice where they would get a report from the lab, they would then offer it as evidence, and then it would be up to the defense to subpoena um, the actual chemist to show up for trial if they wanted to. And it's part of that statutory scheme that was in place at the time that allowed for a lab analyst or chemist to simply draft a report and then the report in and of itself would be good enough to show the, the content of the substance in question. So the thing that was wrong with that, and it's amazing that it took you know, so many years for the U.S. Supreme Court to really squarely acknowledge this type of practice, which before Crawford was very commonplace. The theory being, at least from the prosecution standpoint, that if this is a report that's generated on a regular basis under conditions of, you know, normality or routine practice, and that if the chemist is merely performing a scientific procedure that there's no reason why this chemist should be subject to cross-examination because it's, it's not testimonial in nature. That was their argument. That, hey, this, it's just a chemist that's doing some tests. It's not, you know, in anticipation of litigation. It's not something where the, the chemist could put a spin on it or, you know, somehow try and portray it one way versus another. And that's actually a rule that goes back many, many, many years where just to make things easier for prosecutors, various state legislatures have sort of bypassed the normal rules in, in, on the theory that if something is just a routine practice and you're just kicking out numbers, you know, from testing stuff, then that should just come in automatically because there's no reason to believe that there's anything wrong with it. Well, we know more <laughs> about the justice system and flaws in it Um I guess we know more, but we also, I think, acknowledge more is what I should say. And the reality is that 
it's it you really can't look at uh, the production of a chemical test result that way as as something purely objectively scientific because the chemist in Crawford was an employee of the state and was well aware of the fact that his or her job was to help the prosecution obtain a conviction and that it was incumbent upon this chemist to find the cocaine in the supposed mixture. Now, you may ask, well, a scientist would never do that sort of thing. Well, yes and no, in the sense that this is someone who is affiliated with the prosecution, employed by the same entity. And if you think that that uh, chemical labs or testing labs uh, are you know, blind to the fact that this is evidence that is being used against, quote unquote, bad guys, then, you know, you're just not grounded in reality because it has been shown in many cases that there is a potential for bias to affect that supposedly objective approach to identifying a chemical substance. Um, and, and the fact that there are important questions that could surround the admissibility of such a you know, and again, it's a number or an equation like this. This contains 72 percent pure cocaine or whatever the report says. OK, prosecution wants to get that in, of course, because that's the essence of their case, that the substance that this person was dealing and was then confiscated and then tested was, in fact, a controlled substance. Kind of the, the meat of the whole matter. Right. You know, it's central to uh, the prosecution's case. But then, you know, because of the fact that many of these state laws that allowed a routine practice of testing substances just to come in rather automatically, uh, someone finally brought this up in the right context and up in the right court, and it finally made it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And this longstanding practice was knocked down under the theory that you simply cannot consider anything to be uh, non-testimonial when it's being um, created as part of the litigation against the person. Okay, you know it, it, it just doesn't make any sense because you know this is this is a report that is being created for the prosecutor to use. That's testimonial. All right, anything that's testimonial. We have that right under the Sixth Amendment to confront that evidence. How do you confront a piece of paper? No, you have to confront the person who made the piece of paper. All right. So you see how I'm coming full circle back here again to this Julie Jensen matter. She writes a note, albeit no crime's been committed yet, but she's anticipating that there will be one and then says, hey, if I die, it's going to be my husband. All right. Now, let's take another step back here because... One thing that was fascinating about this case is that there was a rather compelling defense, um, even including this note and an analysis of, of what it really means, whether it should come in, whether you can cross-examine a note or not, which you can't, obviously, whether you can um, develop a motive to lie, whether you can devote, develop bias in a statement when that person isn't there anymore because she's dead and the bizarre little, you know, 
circular argument that was made by the prosecution that, well, the reason that the pro- that the defense can't cross-examine her is because she's dead. Why is she dead? She's dead for the very reason that he's on trial for, which, by the way, we haven't proven yet, um, but we're trying to. And there, it's like you don't know whether it's a cart or a horse or if the cart goes before the horse or the horse goes before the cart or what. I mean, it's it's kind of. You know, if you think about it too long, you might actually uh, create antimatter and explode. Who knows? But um, there's another aspect of this. I want to get into one of the theories of defense that actually, you know, as I've been following this case, kind of made a lot of sense to me. And I was fascinated at how this was handled at various points during the trial. Um, So uh, basically, it has to do with that whole motive and bias aspect of it. And the original trial lawyers in this case did a actually very uh, compelling job in explaining the various ways that such a letter could be created. So we'll talk more about that when we come back right after these messages. So let's say I'm in fear um, for my life and I'm pretty sure that my spouse wants to kill me and I basically write a letter attesting to the fact that, hey, if I end up dead, I want everyone to know who did it. Okay, so let's start with that. First of all, it's kind of a weird thing, all right? First of all, that there would be a statement that, like, I think he's going to kill me, which is supposedly what Julie Jensen wrote in a note. Um, and, by the way, if I'm dead, it'll be because of him. So what that doesn't address is you know the fact that sometimes people die without being killed by someone else and and here's the kicker and this was fascinating to me what would happen if someone died by suicide and what i mean by that in this particular context is imagine a situation where somebody is uh, in in a very bad marriage and um has decided that they hate their spouse and would like to make that person suffer in the most uh, profound way. And let's say the misery has gotten to the level where that person also has decided to commit suicide and would love to have the spouse be blamed for it. Doesn't that create a scenario where one would have precisely the motive to um, write such a letter. Interesting. I, I mean, you really have to think about that because it, it, that's a that's a viable scenario. It absolutely is. Now, truth be told, it'd be far better for Mr. Jensen to go to trial without the existence of this note at all. But um, the defense team that did work on this case years ago did, I think, a compelling job explaining why this note may exist. And again, she didn't predict how she would die, when she would die, or anything else. It was just like, hey, if I die, it's my husband. And, um, you know, on that theory, if she died in a plane crash, you know, after writing that note, they wouldn't look at mechanical failure of the plane or pilot error. They'd look at whatever her husband must have done to make the plane crash. I mean, if you really think about it, you know, how far that extends. The power of that note to bypass normal 
investigative procedures and, and typical inquiry into what happened. Um, now, true, Julie Jensen was poisoned, and people can commit suicide by poisoning. And I, I mean no, no disrespect to, you know, a potential alleged victim of a crime here. And Mark Jensen has been convicted of, you know, murder. But I'll finally get, get to the point here, which is earlier this week, the courts have overturned that conviction once again based upon an analysis of all the things that have happened over the years and particularly rulings in the U.S. Supreme Court that become binding on the lower courts throughout the country. And, you know, I don't know if this is something that you may be aware of, but, you know, when you're trying to appeal a conviction, you know, not only is it an uphill battle in terms of how a conviction is supposed to have you know, sanctity, I guess, would be one way of putting it, but, or a, 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 pres, a preference for a presumption of normality, let's put it that way. And so a court of appeals who did not sit in the courtroom and listen to the uh, testimony is looking purely at legal issues or if something is so far off that no reasonable juror could ever have found this person guilty, um, you know, it's it's kind of an interesting analysis when they're bound. Court of Appeals judges are bound by what's already on the record. They can't guess at what should or shouldn't be, okay? Now, on that principle, they should only be looking at applying this rule to this set of facts. Is it being done properly? And Jensen suffered, I suppose, a series of setbacks over the years in these different appeals where the conviction would be upheld because they agreed with the trial court, which is almost always what a court of appeals will do. Almost always. They'll say, well, you know, this is what the judge did. May or may not be wrong, but, you know, we think it was okay. That kind of thing. Well within the exercise of discretion of the trial court. Well... Then you have this bizarre rule. I say bizarre only because it, it's that it's almost like a trap door that uh, you know a an improper ruling can still escape scrutiny, and that's basically what we would call the harmless error rule on appeal. And at one phase during the Jensen litigation, there had been a ruling that said, "Well, yes, 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 this note." should not have come in. It is hearsay. It does deprive Jensen the right to cross-examine the witnesses against him and confront the evidence against him, which is impossible. That's all true. However, that was just one piece of evidence in a bigger picture. And, you know, this is kind of, like I said, this little trap door that's out there. They're like, yep, yep, okay, trial court got it wrong, improper ruling, but even though we're not supposed to guess at things, we're only supposed to look at the record, we're only supposed to make rulings on things that um, are based on the law, applied to the facts as we know them, and not speculate. Well, sure enough, Court of Appeal says, we imagine that this didn't have that big of a deal, that big of an impact on the case, and we think that jurors would probably not probably, would certainly have still convicted him based on other stuff, okay? 
Well, then that decision gets overturned because that's ridiculous. And it says, how could you ignore the fact that this you know, note from the grave is just one small piece of the case. That was the whole case. That was the whole reason why the case went. Because the evidence pointing, you know, to Mark Jensen was severely lacking in other areas. And this was a case of, you know, the appellate court playing, let's pretend, you know, let's just pretend that Mark Jensen's lawyer is correct, that this is a violation. And let's just say we agree. Well, too bad. You still lose because of we just think you should lose type thing. Um, so then <laughs> conviction reversed again and then more litigation and it goes on for years and years and years. Well, let's get to the punchline. Earlier this week, um, a ruling is made that says, look, all this is actually it should never have been admitted to begin with going all the way back to the beginning this note should not have ever been part of the case and all these ruminations to try and make it so it should be after the trial already happened um and then to speculate on what the impact of that was if it wasn't properly um, admitted or everything else what he's really entitled to is a new trial and that's what's going to happen so th this will be very interesting. And, of course, the state is not going to let this go because it's been such a controversial aspect of everything. But, um, yes, indeed, our Wisconsin Supreme Court um, makes it so this will have to go back to trial again without the use of this note. And um, basically, uh, we'll see where this starts all over again. I, you'd have to assume that... The case is significantly weaker as a result of the lack of the prosecution's ability to use this note. Now, that being said, um, this is like, you know, national news, The this case. And who are the jurors going to be when this case has been discussed thoroughly? Um, and, and just the name Mark Jensen is going to be something very well known especially for people in, you know, Kenosha and that part of the state where, you know, you've heard of it here because of this radio show. But if you watch the news or you read the newspaper, it's been splashed everywhere. So th there will be a trial where we're supposedly going to find jurors out there that know nothing about this case, particularly the existence of this note from the grave. So it would have to be somebody that's not heard of the notorious Mark Jensen trial and the reasons why it got reversed, which I'm sure there are people out there that, that would qualify that. But then it raises an interesting question. Are those, what, what sort of factors contribute to a person being so shielded from things that happen in the world that they are unaware of this issue? And does that take... Um, people who would otherwise be qualified ideal jurors out of a potential pool. Because if we're only looking at people that don't read the news and don't keep up on current events, aren't we losing something that we should be wanting to have? Well, we'll come back right after these messages. You know, so much of what occurs in appellate litigation re revolves around this basic idea that jurors 
should be told some things, but not told other things about the case. And it's always kind of fascinated me that there is so much complex litigation that has to do with either wanting the jury to know something or keeping them from knowing something. And that's really what most pretrial litigation rulings are all about. And in this Jensen case, the arguments going back and forth are whether or not the jury should have known about this thing. And philosophically speaking, it's it's fascinating to think about the fact that we have this faith in the jury system that jurors will get it right, either by application of their common sense, knowledge of the ways of the world, or maybe even divine intervention. You know, maybe God won't let an innocent person be convicted. Well, we all know that's not true because it's happened far too many times for us to be um, 100% proud of our legal system and its integrity. So what about that idea? What if there weren't any rules and both sides could just present whatever they wanted to a jury with the understanding that if jurors are, in fact, the appropriate arbiters of truth, that isn't it true? The more information, the better. The more things to sift through, the better. We rely on jurors to decide if someone's telling the truth or not. So what would be wrong with giving them everything and not having these rules that prevent jurors from hearing things? Well, this is the paradox, because on the one hand, we trust jurors to get it right. The, there's almost a sanctity of uh, the verdict that is respected as um, absolute, cannot be penetrated. If it is a not guilty verdict, no one can change that. Yet, as we're going through the process, there's this fear that jurors will misunderstand something or they will put too much weight on it where it's not supposed to be given. Or one side will say, oh, yeah, this, you know, this is just prejudicial to our case. Well, things that are prejudicial to either side are supposed to come in. That's the whole point of the controversy. I hear it all the time. If you're making one of those arguments as a defense lawyer that says, Judge, this is too prejudicial against my client. Prosecutor always says, of course it is. That's why we're using it, because it's prejudicial against our client, that client. And that's not the whole analysis. You can't just say it's prejudicial. You have to look at the, you have to weigh the prejudicial effect against the overall relevance. If something's slightly relevant but highly prejudicial, it can be kept out. If it's very relevant and prejudicial, then it comes in, you know, that kind of thing. So, again, this this idea that the lawyers work really, really hard to get in the evidence that they want to support their positions and keep out evidence that they think doesn't support their position. And we have this very, very complicated, uh, you know, set of rules that apply to all this. And then many, many, many exceptions to all of those rules, all all of which the lawyers deal with, not not the jury. And the lawyers argue about these things and say, well, you know, judge, this is this is something that shouldn't come in. And the other one says, yeah, yes, it should. And then you're guessing about prospectively how, what a jury's trial is going to look like. And all these rulings are made. Um, I will say that overall there is a, I guess, a preference for more things coming in than being kept out. 
But I want to peel back the layers and go back to the, the root of many of these issues and what it was that the, those that were creating the basic structure of our criminal justice system in our country had in mind. Um, and by the way, this has nothing to do with you know things that were put in place at the time. It is true that the constitutional rights that an accused person uh, has in our country are a very basic framework and very broadly applied with the intention that applied on a case by case basis um, that they would be they would reflect those rights that we have that affect our society in, in an overall manner that you know let's talk about one of those fundamental rights that Fifth Amendment right to remain silent uh, not to be a witness against yourself you know the idea there is let's not let the government have too much power over our citizens let's have our citizens have a basically a mechanism whereby they can limit the abuse that the government may heap upon the citizenry by saying, I have a right under the Constitution to not participate in any prosecution against myself. Boom. It's supposed to be that easy. It never is. But, you know, that's why on a broad level, things are not more specific than that, because, yes, it does have to be applied on a case by case by case basis. So getting back to this uh, general idea about how those rights are there to protect us and how um, at various aspects of this get litigated by the lawyers anticipating all that you know one reason why stuff doesn't come in in some cases is because and this is a good rule i'll tell you there's a prohibition generally on the admissibility of what we would call character evidence i know you've heard that term used at various points but the basic rule is that a trial should not be a contest over who has better character. You know, is this, if it, let's say it's a bar fight and one guy's accused of hitting, person B is accused of hitting person A, but person A is accused of hitting person B. There's evidence all over the place as to what happened. You know, neither side should come in and say, well, person A is... Uh, an investor in many college funds, and he is a benefactor of the community and does many good deeds. That, that's supposed to have nothing to do with what did or didn't happen on the date of the allegations. But, as we all know, that sometimes, oftentimes, the exceptions swallow the rule. So, and this is namely things that happen when prosecutors complain to their legislators it primarily whenever they lose a case and they say oh you know we lost this case not because the person was innocent but because we were hamstrung and we're not able to present this evidence of what a bad guy this truly was and so this general philosophy that you're not going to allow trials to be popularity contests or for people based upon a person's reputation, um, good or bad, to define the outcome of the case. I mean, imagine if that were the rule. And, you know, would that help or hurt this general idea that you know, juries should have access to information when the prosecution would have the power to bring in every single person that didn't like the defendant for whatever reason. Yeah, I loaned him five bucks ten years ago and he never paid it back. You know, they could put on stuff like that uh, in a case that has nothing to do with whether he paid the guy back or not. And 
the the acknowledgement that one side of this equation has a lot more power to generate that type of evidence than the other side, meaning the prosecution that can spend your tax dollars digging this stuff up on people, whether it's true or not. There's an acknowledgement, and this is this is not a federal constitutional rule. This is basically something that is derived from uh, the the state state created rules of evidence, which are which are fairly uniform because they come from the uh, the model rules of criminal procedure. But a big feature of that is keeping out extraneous evidence, trying to limit the trial to just that which is relevant. And you would think that's a pretty easy word to define. What is relevant? You know, we use it all the time in everyday speech. But in this context, it means, you know, keeping things out if it's not relevant to the issues that are being litigated. And how we do that in the criminal justice system is that we define elements of any given offense. And then the proponent of the evidence has to say, hey, judge, this relates to element two where we have to show blah, blah, blah. And then that's why you show, that's how you show relevance. And you, that's why when the, when the prosecutors press to argue why, you know, the defendant owes somebody five bucks from 10 years ago, they have to articulate how that would be relevant to what they have to prove. And that's, that's where you get this, this problem. Okay. So we'll see what happens with the Jensen trial when it, when it comes back. And we see if this will make a difference. It should. Mr. Jensen should be acquitted if all things um, go the way that our justice system is supposed to operate. But we'll have to see. And that, that'll be quite some time by the time the case does go to trial. This type of case is given, quote unquote, priority. But we all know what that means in times of COVID and uh, also with court congestion, it could be years before we see the ultimate resolution of this, which has been a long time coming. So hope you've enjoyed the show. You can tune in every week, um, every Saturday, as a matter of fact, right here on 1330, 101.5 WHBL, or on the interwebs, your favorite podcasting service. You can find us there, too. This has been Legal Offense with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend.